and welcome to Pedagodzilla, the pedagogic podcast with the pop culture core. In this week's episode, week? In this month's episode, we're going to be answering the question, how do ontology and epistemology help you kill Jar Jar Binks with head cannons? <laughs> so to answer this pedagogically aligned question, we have myself, I'm Mike Collins, I'm a learning designer at the Open University, a guy with a microphone and imposter syndrome incarnate, and joining me today we have... I'm Mark, I'm a lecturer in technology enhanced learning, also at the OU, and actually a slight obsession with ontology and epistemology, which I'm going to try and keep to the background this time. <laughs> Hi, and I'm Olivia, I'm a learning designer also at the Open University. I think I know what some of those words mean. <laughs> <laughs> So, Olivia, you actually, um, uh, we had a chat about upcoming episodes and you actually asked to join in on this discussion. So what was it that, that drew you into it? I spotted the word positivism and I had a disaster with positiv- positivism once, not just that I can't say it, um, but also <laughs> that I got it really mixed up when I was doing an exam. I don't know what I mixed up with, but I didn't do very well in the exam as a result of my confusion. And I saw this as an opportunity to have someone explain the word to me in a way that I can actually understand and possibly also repeat back. Fingers crossed, we'll try our best. Okay, so um, yeah, two things about today's episode. The first one is that we had to have a little break at the beginning to A, sort our microphones and B, get ourselves cups of tea. And the second is that this is kind of a mailbox episode. So a gentleman called Scott Cohen got in touch with us and basically passed us a little wish list of things that he said, thank you very much for, you know, uh, uh, enjoy enjoys the format and finds it useful. And just with, could we perhaps cover a couple of things to help him with his own understanding? So Scott, this one's for you. And the things you requested were ontology, epistemology, positivism, and a load of other stuff that we won't cover in this episode, including rhizomatic learning, which sounds like a lung condition. But um, yeah, so we'll perhaps cover that one another day. So first of all, let's break down our question how do ontology and epistemology help you kill Jar Jar Binks with headcanons? Part one, the question. Okay, so um, I think Jar Jar Binks and headcanons is probably the easiest thing to talk about first. Mm-hmm. Um, should we start there? Okay, so Star Wars, it's been going for 40 years now. Some really obvious periods in that, first of all, there were three movies that ended up being called episodes four, five, and six. And then masses of books, masses of comics, all that sort of stuff. And then George Lucas, who created Star Wars, went back to it to come up with a prequel trilogy. And uh, because coincidentally, the toy rights had um, defaulted back to him at around the same time. Watch the toys that made us. I've the toys that made us. Amazing documentary. And then there was another resurgence. They started making TV shows. So the Clone Wars, which was excellent and it's probably the best Star Wars is the Clone Wars. And George Lucas was talking to a new kind of head showrunner. So the showrunner for that, Dave Filoni, and Dave Filoni was kind of taking on some of the the storytelling aspects of it all. But what happened during that whole phase was that no one was really keeping track of the continuity. Yes, there was continuity within the movies, more or less. But then when there's the radio series version and then the books version, none of them necessarily all tied in with each other. So what people tried to do with all this was come up with what they called canonicity, which is the most canon. And there's a, there's a list of these somewhere, and I can't remember what they all, but the most canon, the best, is the movies. So then below the movies, you've got the TV shows. And then below the TV shows, you've got the novels. And then below the novels, you've got the comics. I think it goes something like that. So when there's a clash between two different versions, you take the version that's a higher canonicity, and that's a complete mess. 
And then when, because George Lucas and Dave Filoni are doing the Clone Wars, this thing's about like the Mandalorians, which then clash with all the novels. So that means that the novels are they're, they're no longer canon. So you've got this huge mass mess of canon. And then Yeah, and it's kind of yeah, it's yeah, sort of the concept of canon as well. For those who aren't familiar, not everything is canon. So things like the Star Wars special, for example, the Star Wars Christmas special, oh, the holiday special. Star Wars Christmas, right. yeah, um, was disavowed instantly mm. and is in no way canon. Yeah, it's it's a really messy picture. The video games as well actually cover some interesting points because they always try and develop the plot and then um, in no way impact the rest of the universe. There are comics based on some of the video games. So Kyle Katarn is his name. So he was created for the video games and then they do comics based on that. And there's also some really interesting audio plays based on the video games. So sometimes canon trickles up so that you have something fairly low canon and somebody else creating something in the, with a higher canonicity. Draw on that. It's all about world building. So the idea of world building is that you need a consistent view of what that world is because your fans inhabit this kind of virtual imaginary world. And so therefore, canon matters a lot because if you're trying to create a, a world that people can inhabit properly, it needs to be consistent. And when you've got people, these tr- what they call transmedia narratives and people creating stuff from all over the place, it doesn't tie up. And then that makes the storytelling less um, less immersive because you've got different versions of the same thing. So, I mean, during that period that we've been just been talking about, I think there might have been three different versions about how the Death Star got built. And so, therefore, it's like, well, which one do I have to believe? And this is where you're, what you were talking about headcanon comes in, is because people make different choices about which ones they prefer, even though, you know, Lucasfilm have decided this is what the official story is. But yeah, it's, it's it's Disney have established their own kind of they they've reestablished canon, haven't they? They've well, um, put their their stamp of officiality on it. Yeah. So what happened when Disney bought out Lucasfilm for four billion dollars, which isn't bad? They said, okay, so from now on, only the six movies and the Clone Wars TV show count as canon, and then everything else has just got dumped. And it's now you can still buy it, and it's called Legends, but it's like an alternative, but not. Well, I was going to say, but not real. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's an, and it's an imaginary ver- It's an imaginary story within the Star Wars universe. And so that's and now you've got a, what they call the Jedi Council, who are then deciding continuity. And then every time a book's written, or a comic's created, or another TV show's made, all of it now ties in. So there's all one single continuity and one canon version of everything. I was going to say this sounds like something that interests me. I'm a former editor, and there is nothing more annoying than a lack of consistency and a lack of a style guide so it sounds a bit like the canon is a style guide yeah that be said to be true that's true uh, usually they call it i mean a lot of tv shows when they first start up they come with what they work out what they call the bible and so that's like and then in fact we have things that are canon and non-canon in the bible you know like when the when the Bible was created, there were masses of different versions of Gospels and different revelations and all these sorts of things. And what mm. the Council of Trent did was gather together all the things they liked and thought this should be what Christianity is and form the canon. And then everything they didn't like, so the Gospels they didn't like, like the Gospel according to Philip, never made it into the Bible, but it's just as valid as the Gospel according to uh, Matthew, both written by apostles, both written at the same time. One makes it as canon. The other isn't canon, and then just ends up being burnt or buried in a desert somewhere. And we only know it by a whole random set of things that it's managed to survive for a couple of thousand years, just because you know people hid it away, and we end up with the Nag Hammadi gospels, 
which aren't canon, but, you know, still could have been if the Council of Trent had gone a different way. Yes, and who knows which ones didn't survive. Exactly, you know, yeah. yeah. Uh, kindling or something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, of course, the more feminist stuff was the stuff that got burnt. So, <laughs> so uh, well, that, that survived by various means but didn't make it into the Bible. So, so you'll always have had people making these decisions about what counts and what doesn't. And going back to Mike's question at the start is about headcanon is you can decide for yourself what counts and what doesn't because you're the audience. You can actually pick and, and pick and mix if you like, but or you can just take what you really want. I think that's kind of the big thing about Star Wars as well is that it, the, this kind of this natural sprawling nature of it has led to this this opportunity for people to develop their own headcanons because there is so much media out there between the books, the comics, the games, and the movies, and now the TV shows that you can essentially make your own decisions as to what you choose to include within your personal understanding of the wider story, which does link in later on to our pedagogically aligned themes. Aha, Mm -hmm. making the links. But um, Olivia, I just want to quickly nip back actually to um, something you said before we started recording, Mm. which was that you've never seen Star Wars. I think I've seen one of them. Um, Yeah, sorry. You've never seen Star Wars? <laughs> I mean, in, in my defence, Marcus Brigstock made an excellent show called yeah. Never Seen Star Wars um, because it's such, a, it's such a ubiquitous thing. And to have managed to bypass it to, uh, to a greater or lesser degree is, is quite an impressive feat. So is, is there any particular reason or is it just never really, never, never fussed you? This doesn't sound like the kind of thing I would like. <sighs> I, I think Olivia's that might be the first non-geek we've had on the show. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, 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 it's good. That's exactly what we need. We're trying to broaden our base. And Imposter! I saw the one where there was a really awful love scene. Oh, I don't know which one it was. It was maybe 10 years ago. I remember sitting in the cinema with some friends absolutely falling about with laughter because there was this terrible love scene yeah. in a field, um, and it was just dreadful. Oh, I know the one you mean. Yes, that was... Um... That's episode two, isn't it? Uh, yeah, the of the, the the prequels. Yeah, so that those were particularly badly done. Yeah, uh, George never wrote really good female characters. He's got this like if you take out Princess Leia from the six original movies, there's hardly any women in there, and so you know that's something they've been trying to fix with seven, eight, and nine. Yeah, the pre- the prequels are not good movies to come in at. Um, that would that would definitely have put me so. off. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm very sorry <laughs> on behalf of geekdom. Okay, so having constructed a, a metaphorical wicker man for the non-geek in the midst, uh, let's move on to our pedagogically aligned thing. And the reason I'm saying pedagogically aligned rather than piece of pedagogy mm. for the episode um, is that uh, ontology and epistemology are things that you would encounter in a discussion on pedagogy, and I think particularly uh, in research, but not necessarily sort of solely of that domain. I think we're going to come back to looking at do another episode actually on how pedagogies vary depending on your epistemology and ontology. So yeah, we, we don't really have time to look at pedagogical aspects of it this time around. But you know, we're building up to that, but we need to do it in steps. I think. Yeah, well, yeah, we'll, we'll try and we'll try and tie it all together um, eventually in a little bit. Yeah. yeah, but thinking about personal connections as well. Um, Olivia, you've actually got a special connection to ontology and epistemology. Well, I'm studying them. I have studied them in a module I'm currently working on, an open university module. The words have definitely come up. I think I have engaged with them in some way, but unfortunately, the meaning has not stuck with me. So if anyone can explain them to me slowly and clearly today, it'd be a huge help. Brilliant. Okay, so that's our, that's our dual objective, is <laughs> to um, A, answer our question, and also B, get it in a way that, um, I'll, be, I'll be honest with you, Olivia, I had never heard of the words until um, they appeared in our Twitter message box. 
so if we can reach a position at the end where you and I are able to uh, nod knowingly at, mm-hmm. uh, at the meanings of these, then we'll have mission accomplished. Yep. Okay. In which case, without further ado, should we do ontology first? I've got ontology <clears throat> in brief as ontology is what does and doesn't exist and how you categorise it. That's it. Done. Job done. Thanks, Mike. Okay, right. Next. <laughs> Epistemology. <laughs> so, yeah, do you want me to expand on that? Yeah, yeah we should probably definitely expand on that. Okay. <laughs> so, I think we've all seen ontological debates. There's that Father Ted episode where Dougal is just come up with something and he goes, aha, now we have to go to this chalkboard. And then they've got a list of real and not real on the chalkboard. And so they write it into the not real. And that's basically an ontological debate is what is and what isn't, what exists and what doesn't exist. And so if we're looking at an ontological view of the world, then your ontology would include, well, ghosts are real or UFOs aren't real or all those sorts of things. And that's basically all it is. Uh, but it, it's not. It, but it's got this wonderful um, concept of a scale as well. So this sort of scale of real to not real. I thought it was a, a Dawkins thing you would I've adapted it from Dawkins. So what the Dawkster ah. came up with was he. I think it's in his God delusion thing because he's uh, he's a bit obsessed with God. It, basically, he says that there are there isn't just atheist and believer. It actually exists on a seven point scale. So at one end of that scale, you've got somebody who hundred percent believes in God and absolutely exists. And then at the other scale, you end of the scale, you've got somebody who 100% believes that he doesn't exist. And what I'm saying is that actually that, that scale could apply to anything, to anything where you're looking at the ontological nature of something. So it either 100% exists at one end, uh, which we call um, number seven, or 100% doesn't exist, which we'd call number one. There's this another thing called rational skepticism, which is that ontologically, you cannot say anything 100% exists because, because... Because obviously we live in a simulation. We live in a simulation. We might be having an hallucination. And we see this time and time again with science or whatever, is that, you'll, you know, Newtonian physics is, is absolutely true one century. And then two centuries later, we've got Einsteinian physics. And it's like, well, how could that be true? And then it's not true anymore. And this is where, you know, the Dawkins scale would work is because, well, Nothing's ever 100%. You cannot absolutely say for 100% something is real. So the best you can get is six on that scale. And that's all you can say is what, what is real is or what is true is this is the best explanation for what we see around us. And then at the other end of the scale, you, cannot, you can't say, you know, there's, there's, I don't think there's evidence for any of the religions or, or there's no evidence for even <laughs> – um, you could even say Star Wars – really happened some, somewhere really a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. You, you can't say for definite that it didn't because anything could happen just because you don't have evidence for it. That's not evidence of absence. And so really what you're looking at is a two, which is it almost certainly doesn't, but we don't know for sure. And so really ontologically, you're looking at scale that goes from two to six, not one to seven. That's kind of his argument. Can I ask two questions? Yeah. Uh, the first one is, do the points on the scale have names or are they just or like labels or are they just like points on a gradient i i think well because he's talking about god specifically then he would talk about point six being an atheist and point two being a believer and then point the middle bit four would be agnostic and then five would be an atheist leave it leaning agnostic and three would be a believing leaning agnostic and that's kind of how he labels those 
I mean, it's not really, there's not really absolutely these defined characteristics anyway, because it's a spectrum. Like the Big Bang, say, for instance. Now, is the Big Bang real or not is an ontological question. Does it really happen? I suppose it's also cosmology. And so you've got lots of competing theories about how did the universe start. So you might be looking at kind of something around a a four or a five, and you've got the steady state theory, and you've got the Big Bang theory, and you're looking at those. And then you find, you predict, well, if there's a Big Bang, you'd have this 4K millimeter background. And then somebody finds a 4K millimeter background. So suddenly, instead of it being a five, it's a 5.8 or a 5.9 or something. So you know, when we're looking at at anything of, in the world around us, looking at the evidence for and against and balancing those things are always moving up and down that scale from two is really low in this thing. So two, COVID is caused by, by 5G towers, all the way up to six, which is it's caused by coughing on each other or whatever. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Okay. My okay. other question was to do with something that had confused me before, and it's... Can I just clarify? It's this is to do with not whether something exists, but whether you perceive it to exist. Oh, well, that's an ontological question, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Is it? Does it exist? Does it? Or does we perceiving it? Is it like on a scale that we've just made up between us? Is it a seven? It really exists, or is it only a six? We, we, we perceive it exists, but all we can say is that we perceive it, and maybe it doesn't really exist. But we perceive it, we can touch the table and we can weigh it and all those sorts of things. So we're pretty sure it does, but maybe we're just perceiving it in that way. But yes, the question, is ontology ontology real? I think it's one of those things where if you put that into Google, the universe ends or something? <laughs> um, well, and also the other part of ontology is about how do we categorise the world around us? So in the lead up to this, I was talking about um, the taxonomy of animals and my favourite, did you know? But did you know that birds are now classified as a type of reptile? I did not know that. Okay, and that is because the way we used to classify uh, animals was by what they look like. So does it have scales? Does it have feathers? That sort of stuff. So that is, that's an ontology because it's like, well, we will group these together in this way because they're all scaly, and we'll group these together in this way because they've all got feathers. These are reptiles, these are birds. But what they do now is they will actually, they, because you can, take apart the genomes of animals and look at the DNA and stuff, you can see how closely related, at what point animals diverged in their evolution. You can look at how closely related they are, and you can see that actually birds and crocodiles are really closely related, much more than crocodiles and snakes are, or squamates, or all the other sorts of reptiles. So what that means is that if you're trying to be consistent about it all, you would group birds in with everything else, not make them a separate taxa. But then, so, but that decision, for example, mm. to change how you're categorizing and classifying would be wonderfully transitioning into epistemology because that yes. would be making a choice as to what you count as evidence. Yes, so, exactly. Uh, oh my God, yes, exactly. An epistemological discussion there would be what are we counting as evidence for our debate as to what is a bird? So the ontological question is do birds exist? Are birds related to lizards and then the epistemology is how within that you're going okay so we used to look at them and work out whether they had feathers and wings and beaks but actually we're now choosing to instead go into the the dna the genome uh, and see that they're actually more closely related to these lizards so we're making a decision that they fit into this bucket because of that and that's epistemology is that right yes absolutely correct (sighs) 
That's some brain work. <laughs> and that's it. That, they are interlinked and they are both complicated words, but actually that's the way it fits together is that ontology is what is and what isn't and how they're all categorised. And epistemology is just, well, what do we count as evidence? How do we go about making those decisions? What, how do we find out about the world around us? Does that make sense? Does that make sense, Olivia? It does. Yeah. It does. I'm really sorry. I'm really surprised that I've understood that. Yes, it does. Make sense. <laughs> the annoying thing is, and we'll get onto this when we talk about constructivism and constructionism, is that the words don't help. You know what I mean? They're not normal English words. They're, you know, and, and so if it was just what is and what isn't, no, let's, let's call it what is what isism. No, that's difficult to say. And the other is, how do we find outism? Then those would be simpler words, and that would make sense to everybody. But because we're using more complicated words, it sounds like harder than it is. Mm, I think it doesn't help as well, but there's definitely kind of, there's an invisible borderline between ontology and epistemology that you can cross accidentally without knowing in discussing it. So you think you're having an ontological discussion and it turns into epistemology, and it's because they're both bits of the same yeah family of uh, of uh, inquiry yeah and really i don't know if that matters but yeah what exists and what doesn't you have to agree on your epistemologies before you can then really agree on your ontologies and then and it also works the other way around as well is i would argue and we haven't got to that yet but you need to pick your epistemology depending on how concrete or abstract something is as well apart from a learning designer who might have an epist- an ontological conversation I think they end up happening happening all the time. I mean, you know, last time I was chatting to Mark and Claire, and we we're talking about ghosts. You know, <laughs> and it's like, well, do you believe in ghosts or not? That's a an ontological question because it's like, well, they're not real, are they? Because, and they go, well, why aren't they real? Why don't you think they're real? And then that becomes an epistemological question. So I think ontologies, ontological questions, happen. So we're actually having them all the time without yes. realizing. Yeah, we're yeah. having them all the time, but without labeling them as that. A really good one would be something along the lines of, um, are the Simpsons real? And you might decide based on your epistemology to actually conclude that perhaps they are. If you base um, your method on things like impact on society, number of people who, who are aware of them, that sort of thing. Uh, time on screen compared to real humans. It's something that you, or you can apply to just about everything. This is a thing about simulacra and simulacrum. And whoever the guy is who came up with that sort of stuff is that is the perception of the world and the media around us, like Marshall McLuhan was all talking about, because that's actually a re-representation of the world, does that re-representation matter more and actually have more reality than the thing that's happening somewhere else in the world? You know, at some point, we'll put in the show notes what this person is who came up with this, whose name I really have just gone blank on. And coolly, Mm. the ways that you might determine that, so you'd need uh, so it'd be an epistemological decision as to what you count as evidence, because this is, can help bring us on to our next two bit components, which are positivism and interpretivism, is that you would need to decide your approach. And that you've not just got the two schools. I think you've got positivism, interpretivism, interpretivism and something else, haven't you? Yeah, again, this is partly my own interpretation of it. But I've also put belief on that spectrum as well, in that the, the, basically if you're looking at three epistemologies, then I think positivism, interpretivism, and belief are actually the three categories of epistemology that people use, we see in the world around us, but people don't often stick belief into that three tripartite thing. And the person's name, I've just looked it up, is Baudrillard. So there you go. Baudrillard. Yeah. It sounds like an, I, I would buy that wine, I think. I would, I, would, <laughs> I would enjoy a glass of Baudrillard of an evening. So yeah, if we maybe start by talking about 
positivism, okay. my understanding, is kind of your behaviorist approach. It's things that you can measure, things that you can count. It's your, I want to go out into the world with my, my protractor and work at how many angles. I want to measure the length of this and I want to count these. Yeah. And that kind of underpins all of the physical or the natural sciences. So physics, biology, chemistry, they're all based on stuff you can actually point a telescope at or measure with something or weigh or whatever. So, yeah, and a positivist would say that is the only kind of knowledge there is, is stuff you can actually measure. Uh, and So, yeah, and that's kind of a, quite a straightforward idea, I think. But then there are flaws with that. Hmm. So even though you've got instruments measuring stuff, you can never really know that absolutely that's working. It's just, you know, it's a bit more solid and a bit more concrete. And there are people that particularly like things that you can just measure and add numbers to and all that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and it's not so good for measuring things that are hard to measure. Like, for example, if you wanted to categorize, can cats feel love? You might really struggle to measure that. I mean, obviously, you might stick some electrodes in a cat mm. um, and stimulate bits of brain, but you'd never really be able to um, uh, categorically say whether or not a cat feels love. Well, then you'd have to define love. I mean, there's a thing they call attachment <laughs> theory or something, and it's basically you basically you have a, the cat owner in a room and then play with the cat, and then the cat wanders off, and then that person leaves the room, and then you look around, you measure the cat, and you can see how long it is before it notices, and then the human, the owner comes back in, and then you can look at how soon it is before the cat responds to the owner coming back, and it's you know it's it can be forever basically because they just don't care enough. Um, whereas a dog, they've done it with dogs. The dog's distracted. The person, the owner, leaves the room. The dog looks a bit distraught. The the owner comes back in, and the dog jumps on them straight away. Now you can measure the time it takes for the dog to jump on the the owner, and you've done the same with parents and kids. And the kids are the same. It's like, oh, my mummy's gone. Get distraught. Mummy walks back into the room. The kid runs up to them. And dogs and babies are the, the toddlers are the same like that. And cats just don't care. Um, <laughs> now you can measure. Uh, from a positive point of view, that time interval between the owner or the parent walking back into the room and say, well, dogs, it's like 0.5 seconds and cats, it's anything up to three hours. That's a positivist measure. But what that means isn't a positivist question. And you can't say from that, well, that's love or whatever. What you can say is this is about response and attachment and things. So that's where your interpretivist stuff comes in because you have to then kind of look at it from different perspectives and say this is happening or that is happening from my own perception of mm. what's happening. So be before we move on to interpretivism, Olivia, do you have any questions on positivism? don't think so. I will declare my failure to understand it previously meant that I completely flunked an exam several years ago. Oh, no. so I, <laughs> I don't know what I got it mixed up with, but uh, I obviously didn't get it right. Um, so this is a great relief to me. I think I have now understood it, which is one of my life goals. Oh, fantastic. So well, I think <laughs> I think the name doesn't help because positivism makes it sound like, I don't know why, my first interpretation of it before I actually read up on it was that um, it makes it feel like optimism. <laughs> I was like, oh, positivism. You're like, oh, this test will probably go well. Um, yes. If we could come up with another name for it in the yeah. same way that they're the what-is-ism and the how-do-I-class-it-ism. Measuretism. Um, uh, yeah, measuretism yeah? is great. Yeah. Okay, let's go yeah. with that. I mean, I suppose that's the that's the difference. Is is not it's not that this experiment will go well, but I will run this experiment and I will find out yes or no. And it's kind of you know yes or noism, or, or well, yes there's or also noism. probably we haven't got enough data yet, but we will find out absolutely. You know, and this is where we have physical laws. 
physical laws are positivist things. So gravity, and you know, if you drop this, it will accelerate at this particular rate. That's a positivist statement, you know, and that's that's all why positivism, why some people just accept positivism and nothing else is because it's extremely successful. We've had the scientific method for, you know, since the Greeks or whatever, and um, and it's worked out, I mean, apart from global warming, but it's worked out pretty well for us as a species because it's enabled us to work out not, well, I was going to say what's really going on, but we know ontological, we never, ontologically, we never know that. But it has enabled us, us to get up to six on that one to seven scale, basically. And then diametrically opposed to positivism, you have interpretivism. So you've got positivism, which is uh, things you can measure, mm-hmm. as, you know, your, your observables. And then you've got interpretivism, which is how you're interpreting the world around you. It's also kind of the wisdom of the crowds, as it were. Yeah. And I think one of the issues with people just coming up with stuff that might or might not be true is that we'll use anecdotal evidence but the problem is with that is that's just an anecdote that's just one person and so basically that's no good as data but interpretivism is different from that in that you're trying to do it on a larger scale so you could ask a hundred people or a thousand people you did this you did that what happened next you try and take into account all of those experiences so you might look at all of these qualitative responses about people's feelings, people's perceptions, but you tag them all, you try and include everybody's opinions, you try and look for differences between different groups of people. And so it then becomes not just a collection of anecdotes, but because you're being systematic with your analysis, because you're, bringing, you're, you're not excluding data, and because you will look for comparable data sets and look for differences between them, then you actually end up with something that isn't like a kind of measure like a, a scales or a telescope or a, a, a meter can do. But what you've got in between is a set of interpretations of those data, which kind of make sense in that particular study and are kind of robust enough to show that actually on the whole, if you do this, then you will probably 90% of the time get this result. So it's not it's not a, like a, a one-to-one correspondence, A, therefore, B. It's here's a whole mass of A, here's a whole mass of B, and it looks like on the whole there's a connection that this has then caused that. And that's the way that people interpret stuff. Yeah, and it's it's kind of it's the approach that you'd favour for things that are intrinsically hard to measure, like what people think, feel, that sort of thing. Yeah, and that's why people that don't like interpretivism don't like it because it's like, well, you don't know this for sure. And the people that do like it and why all of the research I've done has been pretty much interpretivist is because, yeah, you can't be sure, but look at this. And, you know, we've got this classroom here did it. That classroom in another country did it. That classroom 10 years ago did it. We tried this with them and they all liked it and they all learned a bit better. So I am therefore getting the opinion that probably on the whole, if you do this, it will help their learning. And that's yeah. kind of why interpretivism works. And there's loads, you know, there's, 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 there's feminist is an interpretivist approach that this and this and this is happening because of these things in history. Or Marxism is another one. This, this and this has happened about class structure and whatever. And if we create this class structure, then these things will happen. Well, you know, not 100% of the time. It's not a kind of complete connected law between you set up a, cas- a class system, then you will end up with these sorts of things. But on the whole, you can say that actually with this model, then this will probably happen as a result. Can I ask, is it is it an approach or is it 
more widely encompassing than that. I've been sitting here trying to apply this to the, I don't know, the kind of pandemic situation and thinking. So everybody, in an ideal world, we'd really like a kind of a positivist outcome. We'd like a cure. We like information, data to tell us that this thing works, this thing cures COVID, but we haven't got that. So the next, all we've got is lots of people's knowledge about things that they think might cure it or might make it less awful. And could that be an interpretivist approach if we were to analyse everybody or a crowd's opinions about things that they think could cure COVID or could make it less bad? I think this is where we'd get onto which is the appropriate epistemology for the world around us. And I think something like an infection and a pandemic, there you do need clinical trials because you can say, well, under these, and you can actually run that in a lab. You could actually have two people and you could have one lab in which somebody's wearing a mask and another lab in which somebody isn't wearing a mask and you could look at the transmission rates between those two people and that's an aspect of the world which is actually open to being measured in a positivist way and this is what I would argue is that you don't want to necessarily say I am a positivist or I am an interpretivist what you need to do is look where those uh, those different domains lie in the world around you and say well which approach is most appropriate here I would suggest not doing something like transmission rates in an interpretivist manner. Maybe that's no. something that you instead do as, you know, how do we minimise the impact on the UK economy during COVID would be, I would I would take an interpretivist yeah. approach that I would canvas business leaders, economists, academics, and then pull together that because it's something of which there's, it's very difficult to measure. There's not a lot of data on no. it that we can draw from apart from, you know, previous examples of the Spanish flu and the Black Death. Your your primary um, approach to that, I think, would be interpretivist in answering that sort of question. I think I you're matching your um, your approach um, and your sort of your mindset to the type of question that you're asking. Yeah, and an economist is an interpretivist thing because you can't have if you could have two planets and you ran one with one economic approach and another with another economical approach, you could then maybe do sort of A B testing and come up with something fairly you know, fairly predictive, but you can't. All you can do is ask a bunch of people. And another example there might be, well, what approach will be more likely to get people to wear masks while they're out? And so you could say, well, let's have a law or let's talk about, you know, let's have some examples of people catching diseases or whatever, and then ask a bunch of people which of these would have a more more of an effect on you. And then that would be an interpretivist approach to finding out about what gets people to wear a mask or not. Does that answer your question? Is that clearer? It does. I'm out of another question now, though. Could you separate um, like quantitative research and qualitative research under the same kind of headings? I would say no. So you get a huge survey, you get a whole bunch of numbers in people responding to that survey, and then that's a quantitative approach. But it's not ending up being positivist because the initial data that you're getting are people's feelings about this. So you have your Likert scale, which is, you know, like I really like it, I really don't like it. And then you come up with a number based on that. But although that's quantitative, it's still, I would say, interpretivist because it's, you know, it's fundamental datum that each you're getting from each point is still somebody's feelings about that. And you're not actually measuring a kind in a positivist way, some physical quantity that you can say is that particular number. Like if you measure the length of something and everybody measures it the same way, you can say that's exactly 17 centimeters long or whatever but what you can't do the same thing with somebody else's emotions so yeah attributing a number to it is quantitative but it's still interpretivist does that make sense yes it does make sense okay. before we move into the next section then just to recap uh, so ontology is 
What does and doesn't exist and how you categorize it? Epistemology is within ontology and it's what you choose to count as evidence and how you go about finding or deciding to do that. So within that, you've got two um, potential approaches. Uh, well, three of your mark, uh, two uh, if, you're, if you're me. And we'll, we haven't touched on belief, I suppose. No, we we'll do belief? that. No, we'll do that. Read the blog if you want to know about that. We'll do, we'll do it another time. So your two epistemological approaches are positivism, which is basically going, can I measure this repeatedly, scientifically? Or interpretivism, which is interpreting the world around you based on uh, sort of harder to measure things. Uh, so ask, asking people the wisdom of the crowds, that sort of thing. Is that right? Yeah, that sounds good to me. Based on that then, let's return to okay. our question. How do ontology and epistemology help you kill Jar Jar Binks with head cannons? Part two. The answer. We're back to so Jar Jar Binks, cannons, hatred, hate such hatred. Do for you want Jar to explain Jar Jar Binks, Jar Jar Binks to Olivia? Oh, yes, please. <laughs> okay, well, well, Olivia, funnily enough, so the bit of the franchise that uh, that turned you off, that you dipped your toes in and turned you off to Star Wars, is also connected to possibly the most loathed character in all of history, Jar Jar Binks, who was a sort of slightly racist CG nightmare creature introduced in the prequel trilogy, who essentially added nothing to the story at all. It was just horrible wretched irritating character who served no significant narrative purpose oh no that's not quite true okay okay well okay the so basically the prequel trilogy is about palpatine the emperor's rise to power basically you've got the the republic the good guys there's also the separatists are challenging the good guys but what happens is actually palpatine is the head of both so basically he's a chancellor and he's also secretly running the separatists. And because the separatists are a threat, they get more and more militaristic. And gradually, Palpatine says he can actually defend all the good guys from the bad guys if they give him more and more power. And at one point, he's trying to vie for power and says, like, you know, you need to put me in charge of the Senate. And it's Jar Jar Binks that moves the, no- the motion to elect Palpatine to be the head of the Senate. So basically, he's the biggest stooge ever, and he's the reason why the Empire ends up being created. It really all comes down to that one decision that Jar Jar Binks makes. So, so, he's the, so not is he a really annoying character, he's the, he's, he's the person that actually precipitates the entire creation of the Empire. So he's like crap Neville Chamberlain with a Jamaican accent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you've attached a lot more meaning to the prequel trilogies. Than I think I was just like, this is bad. And it makes no sense. <laughs> and now that's the sense it makes. <laughs> and now they're talking about tax thresholds. Why? Oh, they're supposed to yeah. be starships. But going back to our question then and answering it. I mean, this is actually quite so. Obviously, Mark has attached um, a lot of um, understanding and importance to the prequel trilogies. I, however, am quite happy for them to not exist in my personal headcanon. Mm-hmm. In which case, so I would ask myself within my chosen headcanon, I'm making an ontological decision as to what does and doesn't exist. So what is and isn't part yeah. of the wider Star Wars narrative in my personal headcanon. So my epistemological approach in that, so what I count choose to count as evidence, would be something very interpretivist. So it might be what I felt spoke to me, speaks to me the most, which bits uh, I find most compelling in the Star Wars universe. I might, in fact, you know, speak to uh, canvas my friends and colleagues to see uh, which bits are kind of their favourites as well and build that into my wider narrative. Based on that, I would 
essentially eliminate the prequel trilogies and go back to a situation where we've just got the original three movies, probably some very heavy director's cuts of the most recent three movies, and all the old video games and the uh, the Young Jedi Academy books would be my personal headcanon, which would, in turn, murder Jar Jar Binks with a headcanon. <laughs> yeah, that's that's fine, and I think this is one of the things that you... I, this is interesting to me, and this is possibly really, really boring for Olivia. So, I, but but this is a thing that inflames why there's such a sort of pretty much a kind of toxic fan base is because not only do people then insist that that is their own personal perspective and they you know an interpretive point of view, they then insist that this is the right one because they need <laughs> everybody to acknowledge that their particular bits that they're taking and constructing this movie, this not just a movie, this huge transmedia narrative, is the one that is the official version. And of course it's not. I mean, if you were going to take a positivist view, it would be it's what the, the, you know, the continuity people at, at uh, Disney, the Jedi Council people, Pablo Hidalgo and all that, Hidalgo and all those people, what they say is canon is canon and you don't argue with that that would be the positivist viewpoint but yeah but we don't have to do that it's our money and it's our bookshelves or whatever we can stick whatever dvds we like on that and create our own narrative from all of these or from the bits we like and you know and i've done the same i made different decisions about which bits count and which bits don't but we're all entitled to do that and i think we can all accept that we have a different perspective on what those things are. You know, obviously, like the prequels a bit more than you do, although I, I wouldn't say I was a huge fan, but I still <laughs> include them in my canon because I've got that perspective from it that, you know, that it's actually quite an interesting example of corrupt rise to power of people. Do you do that for anything, Olivia? Is there a sort of a, a I know you're not into the whole science fiction thing, but are there equivalents in any of the sort of narratives that you're really interested in where you you get they're big enough that you can pick and choose which bits you like and which bits you don't i'm not thinking of anything off the top of my head i think but i think that's possibly to do with the way i i think of things as yeah as a former editor i mean i think i, I mean i'm so glad i never watched the rest of the, the spar wars thing to be honest because they always i mean the, that lack of consistency would drive me nuts and i, I honestly i can't think of anything more awful um, in addition to the awful love scenes, the fact that the things aren't even consistent is, is a disgrace. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, I think we've managed to answer our question between us. What are our practical tips for people using this in their own practice? It's pretty vague, but I think the one is not adopt a positivist or an interpretivist approach, you know, as if you this is a, a, a value-driven position to adopt, because that's not appropriate. I think some areas you need positivism because that's going to get you the best uh, answers and some areas you need interpretivism because that's the only way to get those answers and to be able to you know adopt the right kind of strategy depending on what it is that you're looking at how real it's going to be the answer is going to be okay so uh, and my top tip is don't get flummoxed by the uh, the terminology there's always a, a temptation in academic discussions to batter each other with big long words uh, instead, just remember that ontology is does existism, epistemology is what counts as evidenceism, positivism is measuratism, and interpretivism is Ronsu. It does what it says in the tinism. I think my practical tip is that it's fine to come up with your own terms for big words. I like what is ism. Um, ism. I find they're much more approachable than the other words, so I might use those from here on in. We should do that in future episodes, actually, Mark. That's a really good point. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, particularly when we do the constructionism and constructivism and all that sort oh, of stuff. Oh, yeah. Blech. Fantastic. Okay, uh, let's, uh, let's wrap the show up. So, thanks very much for listening. Uh, you can subscribe to us on all of your favourite apps, feeds, iTunes, and at our website, pedagodzilla.com. You can also get in touch via Twitter. I'm at pedagodzilla. And Mark? I'm at Mark Childs. I'm at OKA underscore Roland. If anybody else has got requests, we do take requests, as you can see from the fact that we're answering Scott's query here. So anything else like that would be really good. Gives us an idea about what to talk about next. Yeah, Scott, we uh, we hope you we hope we uh, answered your question. Do let us know. Uh, do let us know how we did. Um, a review on a scale of two to six, please. Um, <laughs> hey, fully. Hey. Uh, We've cool. got our own uh, jokes. Way. <laughs> Uh, We hope you enjoyed the episode and we'll see you next time on Pedagodzilla. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.